Lord, I thank you for your word for our hearts today through Psalm 80. You've given us these words to pray in whatever situation we're in, and I pray, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us, you would help us to be bold and faithful in prayer, even as those who first sang this psalm prayed this prayer so long ago. So I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Back in the late 80s, a line was spoken on a TV commercial that was aimed at seniors, and it was for a medical alarm and protection company called Life Alert. The line was eventually trademarked. Does anybody know this line? I've fallen and I can't get up. That's right. Well, sometimes we fall physically or emotionally or spiritually, and we need help getting back on our feet. And so in probably what is the most well-known and most beloved psalm, that is Psalm 23, David writes from the perspective of a sheep. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So we might ask, well, why do sheep need restoring? Well, it's when they fall and they can't get up. As a shepherd himself, David knew how important it was to keep an eye on his flock, constantly watching for sheep that had wandered off or needed rescuing or restoring. And there's an old uh, English shepherd's term for a sheep that's fallen down over on its back and it can't get up. It's called cast. And author and shepherd Philip Keller wrote this. He said, a cast sheep is a very pathetic sight. Lying on its back, its feet in the air, it flays away frantically, struggling to stand up without success. Sometimes it will bleat a little for help, but generally it lies there lashing about in frightened frustration. If the owner does not arrive on the scene within a reasonably short time, the sheep will die. Even David, a man after God's own heart, who was much loved of God, knew what it was like to be cast down. He was he fell into despair. He was dejected, you know, from circumstances, circumstances within himself and from outside of himself. He had failed under temptation, and he also felt hopeless under attack from his enemies. But the Lord is his shepherd who restores him, restores his soul. Well, a good shepherd does that, restores his fallen sheep. And you can actually go to YouTube and you can see pictures of sheep who are doing this. Um, I was amazed when I Googled restore sheep, the kinds of things that you'll see on there. And actually modern day farmers demonstrate how to turn a sheep and restore a sheep. You just go up to the sheep that's laying there literally with its legs in the air like this and you just gently give it a shove over on its side, help it to stand up, you might have to stabilize it a little bit or rub the sheep's legs to get some circulation going back in the legs. And then the sheep will kind of be wobbly at first, but then will regain its strength and eventually, you know, walk off or even run to join the rest of the flock after being restored to life. This is what God does. He is our patient and tender shepherd, and he gently restores us or turns us he loves us, and he's ready to come to our rescue. And Jesus, our good shepherd, willingly lays down his life for us, his cast-down sheep. So Psalm 80 is a psalm of, of lament. It's a cry for help in a time of trial. And did you know that more than 
a third, and nearly half of our psalms are psalms of lament. And is it any wonder? It's through many tribulations and trials that we enter the kingdom of God, and we can identify with these psalms. The cry for restoration is a theme that runs throughout Psalm 80. Did you notice, I think you did, the progressive lengthening of his call to, out to God, his name. He says, restore us, O God. Restore us, O God of hosts. And then restore us, O Lord, Yahweh, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So the psalmist prays more and more passionately for their shepherd to restore and save them. It's as if God is magnified with each outbreak, each chorus here, and only he can save. So what is a song of restoration? That was the title of our lesson this week. It's lifting up your broken heart and calling out, help, help, Lord, I've fallen and I can't get up. And then pleading with him to restore you, restore us, oh God. We all need restoration because there's always gonna be trouble and conflict. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis wrote this. He said, the Psalms tell us that trouble is normal, darkness is possible, reverses are likely, there is a herky-jerky pattern to believing life in the Psalms. The Psalms make clear that we do not get to some higher ground, a sort of experiential plateau where we mostly live above life's crud line. Rather, there is only this ground where we stand, this frequently troubled, always changing, God-present ground. So we are always battling our flesh. Yes, we have times of rest, but we never retire from fighting for holiness. And then we fail, and then we plead for restoration. We don't hold on to a sugar-coated view of our life. That is, we don't just think that we are, quote, good people, and if you love God and have enough faith that everything will be fine, health, wealth, prosperity. No, the Bible tells us that we live in a sinful and a fallen world where the people of God do experience trials and tribulations. And we live in a world where the judgment of God rightly falls on us as believers because of our sin too. And when that happens, what do we sing? We sing God's word back to him. We sing a song of restoration we pray God's word back to him. Restore us, O oh God. We never arrive at a place in our lives where we no longer need God's grace. Restore us is the cry of our renewed heart. It's a cry for God who began that good work in us to continue working in us, to form us into his image, to shine his light into those dark places in our heart where maybe there's sins that we haven't even acknowledged to grant us grace to overcome and to walk in the spirit following the voice of our good shepherd. So we're gonna look at the context here a little bit. Um, this Psalm is in book three, and book three includes Psalms 73 through 89, and there is lots of lament and complaints here. Lots of divine judgment too. Most of the Psalms in this section are laments over their exile from God. They cry out to God to save them or deliver them from judgment. And next week, we're going to study Psalm 77, where the people cry out, wondering if God's steadfast love has run out, has his, have his promises failed? 
And as we study these psalms, we put ourselves into the sandals of these ordinary Israelites, and then we learn ways to express our longings to God, who is able to reconcile us and restore us. So Psalm 80 is not just beautiful poetry, it is that, but it's part of the songbook for God's people. The Israelites sang this in worship the way we sing hymns on Sunday morning. This psalm expresses some of the hardest and the most painful of all emotions that we feel. Sorrow, rejection, despair. And this is a community lament because the people, or at least part of the people, part of them are in distress. Immediately after, in Psalm 81, we see a recounting of Israel's history and their unfaithfulness and their guilt before God. It says, God says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. So on your outline, we're going to dive in here um, to stanza one. We've already seen that verse three, verse seven, and verse 19 are nearly alike with, they all begin with restore us or turn us, and that can be considered the chorus of this, this song that has three stanzas. Uh, before we do that, I want you to back up. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn and just look back at the last verse of Psalm 79. We're going to read that as we go into chapter eight, or Psalm 80. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. So this is a bold prayer that's based on the person and the promises of God the person and the promises of God. It's a plea for help for God to come to the aid of his people in a time of crisis. He is mighty and he is able to save. Now the mention of Joseph should cause us to think back on Genesis. When his father, Jacob, was dying and giving his blessing, he called God a shepherd to Joseph. Where had God led him? Into a deep, dark valley, right? Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt. But eventually Joseph said to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God had led Joseph and God led his flock into Egypt where they would survive the famine. But they would also be enslaved for 400 years and ultimately then be rescued by the Lord. And by the way, we're going to be studying Exodus in the fall. So I'm excited to dig into this more. Okay, back to Psalm 80. He who is enthroned on the cherubim, he is our sovereign king too. And he is also our sovereign shepherd. He cares about his sheep who are straying, sheep who are cast down. We cry to him when we are in distress. And when he leads us into a dark valley, we know that he is the great shepherd of the sheep and by the blood of his eternal covenant, this is Hebrews 13, he will equip us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us 
that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So why do these sheep need restoration? We don't know the exact circumstances or the historical timing of this psalm, like we don't know what David's pit was in Psalm 40. But whatever the setting is, this psalm is in our hymn book to sing in troubled times, and it's our comfort in these times. We know from Psalm 46 that God is our ever-present help, right, in times of trouble, and we will sing that song, right? We will not fear. That's right, we will not fear. So now we come to the first chorus, verse three. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. They're saying, remember your promises to us, O shepherd. So how is restoration going to happen? Well, three times he pleads for God to shine his face. And in your lesson, you saw that this is an echo of the blessing of Aaron that these people would have heard probably on a daily basis. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We hear that often even as a benediction, don't we, at the end of a church service. So in verse one, the psalmist pleads, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. So this is a reference to God's glorious presence in the, in the most holy of places in the sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant was considered to be his footstool of his throne. This is where God would meet with his people. And on either end of the lid, sometimes called the mercy seat, is where the, the cherubim were. This is where the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. Where do we turn for mercy? Well, Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus is our great, our approachable, and our sympathetic high priest. And it's his blood that is sprinkled on the mercy seat for us. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What did God's shining face mean? It's his favorable presence and his blessings on the people and the defeat of their enemies. Remember back to Psalm 2. The Lord who sits enthroned in the heavens, what does he do? He laughs at those who plot to overthrow him and his Messiah. God's face also brings light into dark hearts. You saw that in your lesson this week. Salvation is to see that light and to walk in it and to be transformed by it. And this is what we see in 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, back to stanza two, where we see the intensity of their situation in verses four through seven. God's flock was not experiencing green pastures or still waters. Did you see the contrast between God's favor, his face shining in verse three, and his anger in verse four? They were in a desperate situation, perhaps the valley of the shadow of death. And we learn here that it is God who has led them there. Remember that God warned them of the consequences of their disobedience. 
Who is ultimately then behind the aggression of their enemies? God is. They had been unfaithful, and the Lord had brought judgment on them. So what do they do? They cry to him for mercy because he is sovereign, and so he is the only solution and their only hope for relief. So in these three verses, we see what one commentator called a trilogy of woe. We see God's anger at their prayers. We see their tears in full measure. We see their contentious neighbors and the mocking enemies in verse 6. And then we see their first question in this section. How long? In Psalm 30, David wrote, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So there's a contrast between anger and favor, moments versus lifetime, tears in full measure versus joy, and night versus morning. God's just anger toward his flock is real and it's deserved, but it lasts only as long as is necessary. His favor toward his people is equally real and it never ends. So what do they need? They need restoration. Here we see an even more passionate, urgent second chorus calling on God of hosts. As our need increases, we go deeper into God's revealed character. And we see in verse 7, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Stanza 3 is the vine crying out to the vine keeper in verses 8 through 19. And their prayer is based on on God's purposes for his people who are like a vine. God's purposes for his people who are like a vine. This image of the vine is first used in Genesis 49, and it's meant to comfort us. In Jacob's blessing, Joseph is compared to a fruitful vine, and later prophets and also the apostle John used this image as well, proclaiming that Jesus is a true vine. God is the planter. It is his gracious work. We see this in verse 8. And now there's some reflection on their history. He redeemed his people in the past by transplanting his vine from Egypt through the Exodus to the Promised Land. And then God used Roundup on the weeds there in the Promised Land to clear the ground and to clear out the nations uh, for this vine to be planted. And their growth in numbers was a sign of God's favorable face looking on them as they filled the land, spreading far and wide. But he also warned them what would happen if they did not obey him, if they did not keep his law. God threatened them with famine, wild animals, trouble from all their enemies, and even exile if they did not remain faithful to him. So things are looking grim. Enemies have ravaged their land, the vine is in trouble, and this seems like the undoing of the vine keeper's gracious work, removing his shining face, his presence, his power, and he removes his protective hedge from them. So then the psalmist asks the second question in this psalm, a bold and yet submissive question, why? You planted, why have you broken it down? Why have you broken down this hedge of protection? So they no longer feel secure, and they've become easy prey to their enemies. They know that no matter what human enemies actually defeated them, God had allowed it in his sovereignty. 
God seemed to be turning his back on the vine that he had planted. And they ask, why? Well, one answer to their question can be found in the prophets, in places like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Amos. One reason is for sin, for their sin, for which they were warned. At another level, though, the answer is because God planned that Israel, his vine, would foreshadow his true vine. Centuries later, just before going to the cross, Jesus would stand before his disciples in the upper room and say, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. Of course, this psalmist did not have the benefit of knowing that, and so he cries out, why are you doing what you're doing? And although God had a very good answer, God didn't reveal that answer to him at that time. But for us on this side of the cross, we see the glory of God's design, that although Israel would fall, there would be a true vine that would never fail. So here in verse 14, we see the third use of the verb turn here. And instead of pleading with God to turn us or restore us, the plea is for God to turn. God, look, see, intervene, take care of this vine, is what the net translation says. God is the keeper of the vine. So what will he do? The cry is that God would turn himself, even as he had been implored to turn his people. This reminds us of the many times that Moses would plea. He would cry out to the Lord on behalf of the rebellious people, that God would spare his people. They hope for God's intervention here, for God's initiative, and they plea for him to save them from their unfaithfulness and their unfruitfulness and restore what sin had ruined. They remind God of how he is and how his hand acted on their behalf in the past. And they, they plead with him, do it again, turn, turn your face to us, God. So this cry is based on the faithfulness and the compassion of God, the faithfulness and the compassion of God. Verse 15 inserts another image, the son, the son whom you made strong for yourself. One scholar said, son here fits in with the vine image. If you think of a vine as being fruitful and sending out little tendrils and branches, being fruitful. And so the prayer is, Lord, you planted us. You made us strong and faithful and fruitful, and you multiplied us. So please look down on us again and save us. Don't let us die. So do you remember the three-story structure that Sharice introduced to us? So this son here most likely refers to the people of Israel. In Exodus 4, the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve you. And in Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It could also refer to the king who was on the throne at the time. And ultimately, it refers to the Messiah, Jesus. In Matthew 2, we learn that Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt to avoid uh, Herod and his um, killing of all the, the children at the time. And Matthew quotes, he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. We see a contrast between the gracious smile of God on them and not to rebuke them lest they perish. They actually call on God to rebuke those 
who have damaged the vine through fire and cutting, that they may perish. We see that in verse 16. Now in verse 17, we see this prayer for restoration finally reaches his last argument. He says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. The name Benjamin actually means son of the right hand. We see that in Genesis 35. So yes, this does refer to the nation of Israel and most likely to the Davidic king. But the right hand of God also signifies his power. He saves with his righteous right hand. The psalmist is praying for God's favor and blessing to be on the people, perhaps especially those northern tribes, those descendants of Rachel that are mentioned back in verse 1. And then we know the rest of the story, the excruciating suffering of this vine, the people of Israel, would be a foreshadowing of the suffering of the Son of Man, the Son of God's right hand, the Messiah, Jesus, the true vine, who fulfills all that Israel was called to be and prepared the people to see that the way of glory was the way of suffering. So Jesus is that ideal heir to the throne of David. He's the true king. He's the one enthroned above. But he left his throne. He humbled himself, and he gave his life to save us. And then God raised him up. God made him strong. And now he is seated where? At the right hand of the Father. And it's he who we trust to restore us because he ever lives to intercede for us, for his children. So now in verse 18, we come to a passionate plea to the giver of life. And here we see both divine initiative and human responsibility. If you give us life, we shall not turn away from you and we will call upon your name. This reminds me of Romans 10, 13 that says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Or Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus is our life. So the final climactic chorus here, he's appealing to the Lord, all caps, his covenant name, Yahweh. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The ultimate purpose of their prayer, that they would be saved. One more thing to notice here. This psalm has no mention of repentance. We've seen how the level of urgency and, and passion has increased with each stanza of this psalm, but there's no mention of confession here. Israel's problem was not that they had fallen into the hands of their enemies. That was just the painful, obvious symptom. The worst problem was that they had been unfaithful. And repentance and confession is important. Look back at verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. The focus here is not on something that we do. It's a focus on God and God's restoration. It's a plea for God to do what only God can do in us. God's face was not shining on them. We can't be restored, as they plead three times, until God turns his face to us. The smiling face of God is our remedy, 
and our greatest need in time of trouble too. We need his transforming power. And what can we do? We can only sing the song of restoration. Restore us, O oh God. So how can we apply this psalm to our lives? Number one, we can pray and pray and pray again. Pray to, for God to restore. Cry out to him. Use language from this psalm. Give ear. Turn again. Look, see, have regard. Give life. Restore us. Number two, ask for the sake of his covenant name and his steadfast love. Oh, Yahweh, God of hosts, you planted me. Now look on me with your love. Number three, invite the Lord to shine his light into your life and bring repentance. And if you've not trusted Jesus to save you, do it now. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, he interposed his precious blood. But, you know, on this side of eternity, we continually look to Jesus for forgiveness because we are prone to wander, like that hymn says. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So true repentance turns away from sin and trusts in Jesus, and that is a gift from God. So pray, oh God, restore us. Number four, remember your own weaknesses. We can vow future faithfulness, but without God's continual help, we will fail. Jesus said that apart from him, the true vine, we can do nothing. So, oh Lord, make us faithful, restore us. Number five, wait on God and look to him alone for mercy. Maybe you're feeling a certain heaviness as you look back on past mistakes, but your past mistakes do not define you. If you are in Christ, you are no longer under condemnation, but you are under his love. God has supplied the power that you need to live through his spirit. We saw a growing sense in this psalm of God's greatness. May we too have that same growing awe for who God is. He is our all in all, and we cry out, cry out to him, restore us. So find rest and freedom in Jesus' perfect work on the cross for you. This is number six. Find rest and freedom in Jesus' perfect work on the cross for you. Are you struggling with perfectionism? Are you weighed down by pressures of life? Find rest and find freedom in Jesus' perfect work on the cross for you. Stay in the word and know who you are in Christ. He began that good work in you and he must complete it with his power in us. Jesus will work for us. He will restore us, so trust in him. To know that it is all of God should give us great joy. It doesn't ultimately depend on me. Yes, we seek to be obedient, to look to him, to spend time in his word, to cry out to him for restoration, restore us, and ultimately we trust him to save us, to do what only he can do. Number seven, cry out to the Lord for salvation for others. Last night I was unable to sleep and I was praying and I was pondering this passage again and I told you that we're not sure of the historical context of this psalm, but here is one scholar's thoughts on it. He said, the prayer reveals how deep was the shock felt in Jerusalem 
This psalm belongs to the Asaphite temple singers. At their shock at the sweeping away of almost the whole of Israel, 10 tribes out of 12 between 734 and 722 BC, leaving the little realm of Judah exposed now in the north to a new Assyrian province instead of to its sister kingdom of Israel. There's no thought here of the old rivalries of north and south, only distress at the wreck of so much promise and the breakup of the old family. So this gave me the idea to look back and to notice some names, some pronouns, some images that are here. And so look back with me, just briefly. Take your passage out. Look in verse section, section uh, one through three, verses there. Listen, O shepherd, some of your people need help. Come save us, that we might be saved. Do you see that? And then verse four through seven describes the pain and the anguish of your people, they, them. But then he calls out, restore us, that we may, might be saved. And then verses eight through 16, it's all about the vine, right? The sun, them, it, 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 all over the place. The people who desperately need God's mighty power to save. And then in verse 17, oh God, let your hand be on the sun, on them, the people of Israel. And then verse 18, so then if God's hand is on them, it changes again. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us that we might be saved. So you see how the way the psalmist helps us to just kind of enter in to the needs of others um, for salvation, for restoration. And so I was encouraged as I was praying through the night to pray with and for those that I know that don't know Jesus, those in my family, neighbors, friends. So cry out for God to do what only he can do in the hearts of those that you love. And then number eight, trust your good shepherd, the loving father, and the tender vine keeper. Are you facing situations in your life that are causing you to cry out? How long? Why? Are you perplexed by suffering in your life? Have you been praying for a lost family member and are asking, how long do I need to pray? Maybe you've been wondering, why is this discipline in my life so painful? When we ask that question, why, in prayer, we understand that we may never know the answer. But we humble ourselves before the Lord, knowing that he is sovereign in our suffering, he's sovereign in our discipline, he's sovereign in our restoration. Yes, life is hard. He's not just sovereign, but all things come through his loving wisdom and his loving fatherly hand. All things do ultimately work together for good. As Pastor Stephen said a few weeks ago, he said, crawl into our Heavenly Father's lap. Let your tears flow while you hold tight to him. He doesn't make mistakes. We may cry out why to the Lord. We may not see an answer, but we can trust our good shepherd, our loving father, our tender vine keeper. He disciplines us because he loves us. So believers who are rooted in Christ, we're grounded, we're settled, we're established in him, and so we become fruitful. He prunes his vines in order to bear more fruit. God is the rescuer of sheep who have fallen and can't get up. 
First Peter 2 says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Restore us, O God of hosts. Will you pray with me? O good shepherd, and you are good, may we stand in awe of you. May we seek your leading. Would you restore us? We don't have that ark anymore with the cherubim, but we have something far greater. We have your spirit living in us. You are the author of life. I pray that you would give us life and that you would grant that life in the lives of our friends, our family, our neighbors who don't know you. We pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.